Thank you, worship team. <clears throat> Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 26. And you can follow along in the blue Bible in front of you, in the, the rack in front of you. You'll find it on page 237. 237. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> The word of God came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord appointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, And fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The word of the Lord. This uh, passage is not the most interesting or the most compelling passage in 1 Samuel. Uh, but it might be the most important one. 
And uh, just before we get started, I want you to take your bulletin or whatever you may be writing notes on and just write this at the top of your bulletin. I want you to write uh, suspicions about God. Suspicions about God. And then give yourself some space there. Maybe halfway down you want to write self-deception. Self-deception. So at the top, suspicions about God. And halfway down, self-deception. And want you to fill that in as we go through the service this morning. But before we do, let's uh, pray one more time. Well, we come this morning and we have suspicions about you. And we are self-deceived. But as we'll see, we have a very hard time identifying those things. So we need your divine intervention into our minds and our souls and our hearts to see ourselves correctly, to see you correctly, then have the courage to address those things in a way that would bring us closer to you. Help us in this life and our life to come. We ask for you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to do is just to make sure we understand the story. It's pretty straightforward. If you just follow along with me, you see in verse 1, Samuel had anointed Saul to be king. Now, this was some time ago, but here we are again just reminding that Samuel the prophet, Samuel the the child that Hannah gave birth to back in chapter 1, he grew up to be this man of God, and he anoints both Saul and David to be the king over Israel. And Israel now is like a new garden. That's how you're supposed to think of it as the reader. It's the promised land. This is the place like the Garden of Eden where God walks with his people. He actually is, is there in the temple in some way. And this is where he communicates with the people. And from this little rectangle space known as Israel, known as Canaan or the promised land, all the blessings of God are supposed to flow out in every direction from this place. So the people who are connected to God, who are following after God's law, are supposed to then project that out into the whole world. You remember Abraham was giving this blessing. He's going to be a blessing for what? So that he might be a blessing to all nations. So just like flowing out of the garden into the rest of the chaotic world, Adam and Eve were supposed to take those blessings. Now Israel <coughs> is supposed to be doing the same thing. Saul is the new Adam. He's the king. And he has two very simple instructions. I'm not saying they're not easy to follow at some points, but they're very simple. Number one, he's supposed to obey God's word. You see that in verse two. Listen, or verse one, listen to the words of the Lord. This is exactly what God had told Adam and Eve. Your, your first primary role as my business partner, so to speak, God says, you got to listen to me. Whatever I say, that's the right thing to do. I want you to execute my plan. And the second thing is that you need to strike down or oppose any evil that comes into the land. Any snake that tries to slither into your life, you're supposed to cut it off. You're supposed to be in opposition to those things who are, that are in opposition to God or in opposition to God's people. 
Now, the Amalekites are very cruel people, and they had opposed God's people really from the very beginning. Some of you will remember the story from Exodus chapter 17. Uh, the Israelites had just uh, exited uh, the, over the Red Sea. They've gotten into the wilderness. The first couple of stories there are about how hungry they are and how thirsty they are. There's, they've been slaves for 400 years. They don't really even know how to live in freedom. They're, they've not been organized. They can't care for themselves. So God is caring for them, but they're very weary. And right at the very beginning of their travel, completely unprovoked, the Amalekites see an opportunity for plunder. These people don't have an army. They're not organized. They're tired. They're hungry. We can kind of swoop in and get stuff and steal stuff from them. And the way they did it specifically is they would see the trailing group of people and they would always attack the trailing group, the women, the children, the infirmed. And when Moses saw this, he said, we've, I've got to, we've got to organize and fight. And the reason you'll remember this story was this was when Moses went up on a mountainside. Remember this? And he has to raise his staff and Joshua's in the valley fighting below. And you remember what happened as, as Moses' arms got tired, you know, they came down. And when, when, when his arms came down, the Amalekites were winning. But when his arms were up, Joshua was winning. So you remember Aaron and her on each side, they're actually helping Moses hold his arm up and they end up defeating the Amalekites. <clears throat> now, 40 years later, Moses is now on Mount Nebo, which overlooks the promised land. He's giving some final instructions to the people. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. Remember when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all those who were lagging behind, and they had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land that he's giving you, when you go into the promised land and you have rest, then you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. So they, they continue to harass the people of God. And Moses says, there's going to come a day where you're going to get into the promised land and you're going to have rest. And then you're going to go back and destroy the Amalekites for what they've done. Now from Moses to Saul, which is where we are today, is 400 years. And all the way through, and you can look in the book of Judges, the Amalekites are constantly attacking the Israelites, completely unprovoked. Sometimes they take their people. Sometimes they come and take their crops. It doesn't matter what it is. They're always on the offensive against God's people. So then God gives these very specific instructions in verse 3 that we want to read together. Now he's looking at Saul. Now go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that they have. This is this promise that Moses had given. This is what's going to happen. Do not spare them. Whether it's a man, a woman, a child, an infant, an ox, a sheep, a camel, or a donkey. That's pretty much everything. We're going to finally get rid of this snake that keeps slithering in and opposing God and opposing God's people. Now in verse 6, Saul sets up his army against the city of Amalek. 
And he realizes there's a group of people here. You see it with me in verse 6, the Kenites, K-E-N-I-T-E-S. And it says, go down from among, he says to the Kenites, go depart, go down from the, among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So somehow in God's providence, these people who had been showing kindness to God's people got mixed up with the people who hadn't been showing kindness. And Saul says, hey, anybody who's in this city who wants to show kindness to God's people, they need to leave before the attack happens. Verse 9 but Saul and the people spared Agag, this is the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and then the lambs, and everything that was good. He wouldn't destroy them. Everything that was despised or worthless, they did destroy. So for, we just see here immediately, Saul's not interested in listening to God's word. Saul is for Saul. Saul knows God's word, but he'd rather take things for himself that don't belong to him. What does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 3, right? That's the answer. I know God's word, but I'd like to take some things for myself that don't belong to me. That chord gets played out over and over in your life and my life. And here Saul's repeating this same chord, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Interesting response. We'll come back to that. And very, very important, verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and as he was going to meet Saul, it was told to him that Saul had gone to another city, Carmel, and he set up a monument for himself. Again, we'll return to that in a moment too. And then verse 13 to the end of the chapter, which is the primary point of the story, Samuel then confronts Saul. And they have this long dialogue about what did or didn't happen. And Saul gets tangled up in this self-deception. And the whole episode ends sort of a very difficult verse 28 the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul, this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And who is that? That's David. So you see chapter 16, if you have a title to that, probably says David is anointed the king. So that's the story. <clears throat> now I want to just make some observations about this story. First of all, it stirs up some questions about God. If you read the whole story, you, you end up with at least a couple of questions. One of those questions is this word uh, regret, or sometimes it's uh, listed grieves. Verse 11, we just mentioned that God grieves, or it, he may regret. And in even some uh, translations, it says repent that I have made Saul the king. He says the exact same thing at the very end of the chapter in verse 35. Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king. But what stirs up the question is verse 29. 
And in verse 29, it says this, and also the glory of Israel, which is another way of saying God, he doesn't lie. He doesn't have regrets. He's not a man that he should have regrets. Now, I don't, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to say, sure sounds like in two places, he, sa- he says he has regrets, but then he doesn't ever have regrets because he's, he's God. He's not like a man. So this causes you to have some questions, has caused me to have some questions. And the way I would try to explain this, and you can go online and get some maybe more thorough explanations, but for time's sake, I would say that this Hebrew word is being used slightly differently in these different ways, in these different passages. First of all, I think God is grieved. He's emotionally moved. He's sad. He regrets, whatever word we want to put in there, about Saul's disobedience. I think God is always sad about our disobedience. Yet, in verse 29, it's not the same kind of regret that would say, and I made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. And that kind of regret he doesn't have. He can have a grieving regret. I'm, I grieve that that's the way that worked out, but I don't regret that that's what I started. And maybe an illustration would be helpful. Nancy and I, several months ago, were talking about a situation that ended in failure that I was involved with. And I said to her, I'm, I'm sad, I'm grieved that that situation worked out that way. I was really sorry the, of the way this thing sort of ended. And she said, because I was involved in the front end, she said, well, if you had to do it again, would you, would you go back and change the way you did it? And I said, no, I, I don't regret my initial decision. If I were to go back, I would still do it the same way. I just regret that it worked out this way. And I think that's closer to what God's saying. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm going to make things happen and I don't make mistakes, but along the way, I have sorrow about the way people have taken assignments and misused their assignments. Chapter 15, God can grieve over how situations turn out without grieving that he made a mistake. Maybe how I would put it in a sentence. The second question this raises about God, this passage raises about God, which is quite a bit more important, is verse 3. And you probably had it just in reading the text. This assignment Saul has been given. Saul, you need to go down to the Amalekites and don't spare anything. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, camel, sheep, donkey. That actually stirs up a lot of questions for a lot of people thinking about the God of the Old Testament. And you kind of creates a stumbling block for belief in it. The question that is formed in most people's mind is, how could a good God give such a terrible order? We're seeing God is good and God is great, and this doesn't look good or great as far as I'm concerned, especially women and children. So how would you answer that? Most of you all are Christians. You know somebody who's not a Christian. 
they happen to hear something. They go, hey, hey, can you help me with uh, 1 Samuel 15, 3? And you say, well, that's why I don't try to do any evangelism because I don't know how to answer these questions. So I just say, I bet my pastor can. Here's his phone number. One or two people, I'm not looking at you, but one or two people would say something pretty bluntly because I've heard them say it. Here's how they would answer. God is holy and sovereign. Humanity is wicked and rebellious. So God is justified in doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. God is holy and sovereign. We're all evil and wicked. And so however he decides to give judgment or justice, he's right in doing so. And I would respond to that, that that may be technically true. It miserably represents God's compassion. And so the person who gives you that answer, I, I wouldn't want to put them on mercy ministry duty at Christ Community Church. I would want to read back Exodus 34 to a person who would say something like that and say, you remember when Moses kind of got a glimpse of God? And God, this is what God said about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining my love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, if you just want to jump on the holiness and sovereignty of God, I want you to bring along the compassion of and the forgiveness of God. So we're still stuck with how do you put Exodus 34 and 1 Samuel 15, 3 together. And this is the way I might wrestle with the text. And I use that word intentionally, wrestle with the text. Because when somebody has this question, it's really a legitimate question. And I don't know if you're like me. If you ever get into kind of a conversation that turns towards an argument and you feel like, at the end, there's going to be a winner or a loser. Like at the end, somebody's going to have their foot on your throat. It has a different tone. And I wouldn't want to get into a conversation like, I'm going to body slam you with my first three facts here. That, that just the, the, that getting into it with that tone, I think is a, not a good way. I would say, let's, let's just try to wrestle together and see if some of these points that I might make here could be helpful. Number one, the Amalekites themselves were very wicked and cruel people. And we've seen from the text, they're the kind of people who would destroy animals, women, children, and weak people. We already saw that. They're also the people who are directly opposed to God's blessing the nations. They spent their whole life trying to get in the, in the intersection. So when God wants to bless his people or the nations, they're going to say, no, we don't want God to bless anybody. In God's providence, God actually makes them have a friendship with the Kenites. So for hundreds of years, they get to mix with this group of people who do love God and love God's people. 
So you can, they can see it. They visibly can see, hey, they do something different. We can get together, but as a, according to the Israelites, we hate the Israelites. And the Kenites could say, well, no, if you, if you do it this way, it's a lot better. And they've had hundreds of years of watching that in sort of a face-to-face way. Another point I would say is from Moses to Saul is 400 years. That seems pretty patient to me. I mean, how many times do you need to be attacked before you say, okay, it's time to do something? 400 years worth? I bet most of our fuses are quite a bit shorter than 400 years. They have so many opportunities, but yet over and over through the 400 years, they constantly are attacking. And then even at this right, right at the very end before this final battle, Saul sends down a messenger saying, anybody not opposed to God can move, can leave, out, can leave, leave the city. You would still say, because this is what I said, well, what about children? Well, I would say to that, well, not that God needed it, but after 400 years, he could see the generational pattern. Now, we know that Saul didn't actually destroy all the Amalekites. So I wonder, after this battle that some of them got destroyed, did that turn these people? The answer to that is no. 600 years later, in a story that most of you are familiar with, Esther, remember Esther? She's been captured. She lives in Babylon. And a man named Haman... He comes and he hates the Jewish people. And he gets this scheme to say, these people, we have to eliminate all the Jews. So he gets this scheme and Esther saves them because she steps in for such a time as this, if you remember that. You know what Haman was? He was an Amalekite. So now we have 1,000 years of these people constantly moving in this direction. And so I would say if God wants to step in at some point and say, that's enough, that's not so hard to wrestle with, I think. Now, I don't know if that actually would solve everyone's wrestling problems. And the reason I would say that is because I think there's a a layer underneath our suspicion about God that comes from being sinful people. From Genesis 3, all of us have inherited Adam's suspicion. Satan comes in and says, did God really say? You realize if you got that, some good things would happen. And and he plants a suspiciousness about God. God's not really telling you the whole truth. God's withholding good things from you. And you and I, we don't have to read 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3 to become suspicious about God. Your car can break down and not have money to pay. And guess what? You can become suspicious about God. It doesn't take very much, if you've noticed, for you to become suspicious about God. It's not a hard passage like this. I lock my keys in my car. What's the first thing I think of? 
Hey, God, why didn't you see? It just comes naturally. God somehow is not operating the world that I'd like to be in, and he could, and somehow he's prevented or made something happen, and I just immediately grow grow suspicious about him. Your boyfriend breaks up with you. You're 25 and you don't have a boyfriend. You can get suspicious about God. Your mom calls you when you're in college and says, I just got diagnosed with cancer. This happened to me. When I hung up, guess what I did? I got more suspicious about God. You're religious, way more religious than the people that you work with or work for, but you're not financially successful and you see wicked people prosper. You get suspicious about God. You didn't get into the school you want, the job you want, the house you want, the spouse you want, and the children you want. And you get suspicious. See, it, it doesn't actually take much for you and I to become suspicious about God. Any, any point of pain, any point of discomfort is like a crack. That if it's not addressed, it can widen out pretty quickly into to pretty big suspicions about God. And so here's my first question that I've asked you to just write on your piece of paper. What what are you suspicious about God? What's happening now or could have happened a long time ago? And just when it comes up, somehow in your mind, I, I, I get suspicious about God. I don't know if he's awake. I don't know if he cares. I don't know if he sees me. I don't know if he's in control. I don't know if he's not withholding good things. I I get suspicious about God. Now, we're we're not going to be able to, you know, you raise your hand and try to unpack it all here this morning. But it's something you want to know. You just want to know. And you want to try to address. You want to get some friends. You want to get some Bible verses. You want to get a pastor. You want to get into a conversation about why that is. Because that's creating a big block between you and your relationship with the Lord. When we turn and look at Saul here, which is where we're going to end, what we learn is that we should be suspicious, but we should be suspicious about ourselves, not God. And the reason we should be suspicious about ourselves is, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But you and I have an infinite capacity for self-deception. Everyone here has an infinite capacity for self-deception. And the problem with self-deception is you're deceiving yourself so you can't see it. It's pretty easy, obviously, it's pretty easy to point out in other people. But somehow when you're trying to look at your own self-deception, you just can't see it. And you'll see here in Saul. But before we look at sort of how he operates, let's just consider how pervasive self-deception is, in case you're not convinced. This happened a a number of different times right after I got married to Nancy. We'd be driving in the car, and she would say, what's that noise? You hear that noise? What would I say? I, what noise? Turn up the radio. Why? 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 I, I, I knew, but I didn't want to know. Why was that? 
Well, because she grew up with a dad who would go around, pull the, tr- the, the hood open, take off his belt buckle, fix it, and it'd be fine. And all I could do is like, I, where's the hood latch? I can't even figure that out. So, so when that would happen, it was just self-deception. I, 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 there's something riding on it for me, so I've got to deceive myself like, oh, I don't hear it. Then you're on the side of the road. During my young life days, I had so many conversations with kids who were a train wreck. And I'd meet their parents, different places, a young life banquet, a football game, in the stands, a tennis match. And I would just say, hey, how do you think your child's doing? Great. So great. I mean, they're making good grades. It seems like they have good friends. They're on their way to Carolina. They're smart, funny to be around. I would look at them and say, do you not know? I mean, do you not know? And I thought, I think they know. But a lot of parents, self-deception. I know, but I just don't want to know because, you know, there's a lot of me writing on how my kids are turning out. So if anyone else thinks they're turning out poorly, then it kind of comes back to me. So I I use this self-deception so nobody can really bring it back to me. Self-deception isn't the worst thing you do, but it leads to some of the worst things that you do. Many couples or individuals have come to my office. I've been married two years or 22 years. I didn't know when I got married, Pastor Paul, that I was making such a poor, rash, fear-based decision to get married. But I knew. My mom told me, my friends told me. But at the moment, there's peer pressure and there's all kinds of other things and self-deception. Self-deception is not the worst thing you do. It causes you to make bad decisions. 1982 Air Florida flight, flying out of Washington, D.C., already been de-iced. Had to sit on the runway for another 49 minutes. During the 49 minutes, snow covered the wings of the airplane. They got ready for takeoff. Co-pilot says, hey, I'm noticing some concerning signs on the weight on the wings. The pilot says, hey, you know, FAA, they're too heavy on the rules. We've got it. I'm fine. Let's take off. Couldn't get off the ground, hit a bridge. Many people died in the plane. Why? Self-deception. It's not the worst thing you do. It causes you to do some bad things. One of the concentration camps opened by General Patton and Eisenhower. They couldn't believe what they saw. There was a town, Dachau, nearby. So Patton goes and gets the people of the town, and he makes them come out and see what's been happening right behind their back fence, basically. And they have to dig all the graves for these millions of people who've died. And they go get them and bring them back every day. After the very first day, they go back to get the mayor and his wife, and they've hung themselves. There's one note left on their table. We didn't know. 
but we knew. Self-deception happens all the time. And I want you to ask yourself, where, where are you deceiving yourselves? And here's how you can tell if it's working in your life. And we can see this with Saul. Verse 13, Samuel comes to meet Saul. Notice what Saul does. Before Samuel can ask any question, blessed be to you, the Lord. I did everything the Lord told me. I mean, don't you get this feeling like, uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. I don't, I, I don't even want to go there, so I'm, I'm, I'm pre-announcing nothing's happened. Nothing to see here. Move on. Well, what about all these animals that I hear? Oh, well, okay, verse 15. Those animals. This is, this, the, the reason this is funny is because you can see yourself in this, right? Oh, you know, those animals? Well, they brought them. Every time you have blame shifting, you have self-deception. Every single time. I was talking to somebody just recently. Yeah, that's right, Paul, but... And I was like, uh-uh. You got the butt in there. The butt is going to negate the fact that you're wrong. Self-deception. Verse 15. Well, here's another way you do it. We did it for the Lord. <laughs> Ah, we're bringing back the best things to sacrifice to God. See, if I put God in the equation, then I guess it's okay. I didn't obey God's word, but I'm coming back in a disobedient way to obey. Talk about self-deception. Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. So many people in ministry give so much time and energy They can't control their anger or their lust or their greed. And you know what they say? I'm doing so much for the Lord. That's self-deception. Finally, Saul admits he sins. Verse 30. Notice what he says. Yet honor me now before the elders and the people... Pardon my sin so I can go bow before the Lord. What's he saying? Hey, I'm really sorry, but we need to kind of get moving on. And I don't want anybody else to know that I've actually made a mistake. These are all ways that you know you are being self-deceived. And what's Saul's biggest problem with his self-deception? Verse 12, he's built a monument to himself. And when you build a monument to yourself, you're going to self-deceive because you're not actually that great. Newsflash. And they're going to make some mistakes, and because you have a monument to yourself, you're always going to be self-deception in some way. Exactly what Saul's doing here. It's very possible to be the most religious person here, to be doing religious sacrifices your whole life, and you're doing those to shine up your monument to yourself. So I realize it's difficult to identify in yourself, but after seeing Saul, is there some place in your life that you would write down on your piece of paper? I know. I pretend like I don't know, but I know. I'm deceiving myself. 
So if you can identify those two things, you, you need to get some help on them. Because you're not going to get out of it by yourself. You're not going to re- get rescued from your suspicions about God. And you're not going to be rescued from your self-deceptions without the body of Christ in some way coming along beside you. Now, I want to close with the communion, which is good news. And it's good news because of what was happening on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he's doing this last supper. You remember what's happening in the upper room? The disciples were in an argument about who's the greatest. Talk about a monument to yourself. I mean, here, Jesus is dying and each disciple is waxing their monument. Hey, I'm going to be the greatest, you know. And of all the disciples, Pete, what does Peter say? Hey, even these other guys, they're kind of weak links. But I'm not ever going to deny. What's that? A self-deception. He does not know himself. He's going to find out, unfortunately. But in the middle of these polishing monument disciples, these self-deceptive disciples, God says, guys, I'm dying for rotten people like you. So only people that can come to the table are rotten people. If you think you're a good person, this isn't a good table for you to come to. But if you know you have suspicions about God and you hate that you do, if you know that you're self-deceived and you hate it and you are saying, I'm giving my life to Christ and I'm just hoping for his grace and mercy to help me see these things and move in a different direction then good news, tables for people like me and you. Lord, would you take these elements, common as they are, help us see ourselves, help us to see you, to let go of our monuments of ourselves, and with two hands hold on to the Savior who loves us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers will come and usher you out. The elders will come and help serve with me.